So hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Digital Doctor podcast, very soon after episode 15, which was only a few days ago. Uh, my name is Ed Wallet, and I'm joined by the usual gang, who is Stephen Wing. Say hello, Stephen Wing. Hello, Stephen Wing. Uh, <laughs> y. Kyong, say hello. Hello. And we have uh, another guest today, um, Marcus. Say hello. Hello. And tell us, tell us about yourself, Marcus. I'm a locum GP in the northwest of England, but I also work uh, for the Royal College of GPs doing health informatics work. And more recently, got involved in open source GP clinical system ringing of bells, as in we're campaigning. We haven't really exactly written a lot of code, but our idea is to have, um, well, to develop some kind of system that will enable open source to break into GP systems. Um, we, we haven't written anything, but we, we are told that just the presence of our organization in the space has actually made waves. Uh, I've been told that by a couple of people, that it's changed the attitude of the existing suppliers. Well, very good. So, very good. So today we're going to be talking about, we'll get onto that, I'm sure, a bit later. But we're going to be talking about patient clerking. But before we do that... I thought what we'd do as a sort of in the first five minutes of this episode is each of us talk about the things in digital health that we're each working on at the moment. Stephen, cool. what are you doing? Not really much in digital health, really. So I'm in uh, research. I'm doing a two-way translational project on Parkinson's dementia and dementia with bodies, and uh, which is a lot of fun. Uh, something that I uh, am starting is uh, to use accelerometers and gyroscopes to try and quantify objectively uh, people's motor symptoms. Mm. And uh, so that, that might be coming soon. I suppose actually, the more I think about it, the more, the more things I think I might be doing with digital health. So uh, at the moment, I'm uh, collaborating on that with uh, Nokia and uh, the engineering department at Cambridge and neurophysiology department here, which is uh, going to be a lot of fun, I think. Uh, we haven't quite worked out what we're going to do, but the idea is to try and define different, see if we can pick up different phenotypes, compare our data to the gold standard, and really take a data-driven approach. Uh, so no a priori hypothesis, and just see what the data is telling us and see if that can inform clinical decisions uh, and maybe even disease classifications. And the hope would be that we could use that to, uh, in a clinical trial setting as a more objective measure of whether something's working or not. Sounds really interesting. That's a good pitch you just did. Yeah, very good. I've got loads I'll, of stuff, so why don't you go next? Okay, Wai Kiong, I'm, I'm hesitant to ask Wai Kiong what he's working on because he's always working on so much, but tell us. Not, not, not te- too much. I guess the main thing really is, uh, is Cell Counter. So this is the uh, online web tool that was built at NHS Hack Day to allow hematologists to perform um, cell differentials and diagnosis on uh, bone marrow slides. Um, and the big announcement is that we have just incorporated a community interest company last week. So uh, there are three of us, and we thought this would be a very good way to show people that our intentions. Uh, we would like Cell Counter to be used all over the world and uh, for the good of you know education and diagnosis. 
and uh, we are welcoming uh, people to join us as members and also welcome sponsorship to try to realize our vision. And our vision is um, not insignificant. Um, the plan is to create the largest image bank of um, hematology images in the world and uh, use it in such a way that no one else has ever used it and um, before. So that's the dream. Um, and another thing that I'm quite involved in is something called the CCIO Leaders Network in this country. So this is... Uh, probably the biggest network of clinicians with real responsibility for delivering IT uh, in hospitals and other organizations uh, around the country, you know, recognizing that, you know, health IT is not going to work if we as clinicians do not take the lead because it's not an IT project. It's really a whole um, clinical change project. So that's also very, very exciting. And I hope that it be, sets a very good, you know, would create a very good future for health IT in this country. So that that's me. Okay. Marcus, what are you doing? Oh, well, I, I told you a little bit at the beginning yeah. there. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's OpenGPSOC, um, which is this open source GP clinical system. Um, as I said, the, the presence of that has, has sort of changed the way that some of the suppliers have, have been negotiating, and it's paved the way for some of the changes that have gone into the new um, government's specification of what the suppliers will have to uh, provide in terms of features. And then I'm, uh, what else am I involved in? I do uh, a lot of hack day type things. So uh, I've come to the NHS hack day uh, and uh, been quite heavily involved in the community behind that. Um, and don't, don't, don't forget about your Wi-Fi survey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is always that. Um, I uh, About two, three months ago, I was trying to make a point about how the Wi-Fi provision in hospitals was not fantastic. And what you get when you ever discuss this with people is the people who've got Wi-Fi say, oh, we've got Wi-Fi. Hasn't everybody got Wi-Fi? <laughs> and then, the, but the majority who haven't sort of, sort of get very annoyed that they haven't got Wi-Fi and they're not likely to get it. And I thought, well, the only way of actually resolving this impasse is to produce some data, some actual information we can say, this is how many people can get access, this is how many people can't. Um, and it was kind of like some of the best audits, fueled by anger. Hmm. So <laughs> went off and having had this kind of conversation on the NHS Hack Day uh, Google group, and so I started putting together a survey Lots of people helped me with the questions, and um, so the Hack Day people helped, and uh, some Rob Dyke from Tactics 4 and Ewan Davis and Anne-Marie Cunningham, uh, and we sort of collaborated, got the questions right, made them into a survey, and sent it out. And uh, So that's been running since about the end of April, and we've got something like 700 responses. Wow. Um, which the headline figure is that less than 25% of people in hospitals... Uh, of all types, so they, this was open to any staff member. Uh, less than twenty-five percent have Wi-Fi access. Oh wow! Okay, and um, you're also you're also learning to code, unlike Wai Kiong. <laughs> that was that was a low blow, Ed. Um, <laughs> that's how I, that's how I roll. People are used to it by now. You, he totally wasn't ready for that, was he? <laughs> um, you see, I, I would. Yes, I am. Um, 
I was trying to attend your course, Ed. Just that I was kind of, um, I'll be busy saving lives that weekend. Yeah, that's what they all say. <laughs> Touche. <Yeah. laughs> I'm, I'm learning to code. Yeah. <laughs> it's how it should be. Um, okay, so what am I working on? Um, in, uh, I'm working on episode 15, so induction. Uh, I'm also working uh, in the open source space on a bit of uh, on an application called Recce, which is follows the trend of calling all new apps by their English name translated into Japanese. So Recce means list, and it is basically, if you're familiar with sort of team collaboration things like Basecamp, it's uh, essentially Basecamp for doctors. So it allows groups of doctors to gather in teams to look after groups of patients and have task management within that and all sorts of bits and bobs. Uh, it's very, very early. Um, stages, but it's my sort of evening project, which I work on um, while sitting in front of the TV most of the time. So yeah, and then I've done then a, a menagerie, a zoo of uh, yeah. of NHS and uh, private healthcare uh, projects for my company. So yeah, All right. Let's talk about patient clerking. Talking about fuel by anger. <laughs> yeah, fuel by anger. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think, you know, Marcus, you're, you're, you're the guest and sort of the instigator on, on this issue. So maybe you should explain, first of all, what, pay, uh, what this patient clerking thing is and then what the problem, what the problem with it is. Okay, uh, I suppose for people who don't clerk, it's worth just illustrating what it is. Clerking is something... Uh, that you're taught to do at medical school uh, ha- to gather information from a new patient in a hospital environment, gen- generally a hospital environment. And what you do is you ask them questions, having first intro- uh, in- introduced yourself, obviously. And wash your and hands. Confirm- wash your hands and confirm that, that it is that <laughs> patient that you're intending to speak to. Uh, and you, you, so you introduce yourself and then you would ask about their problem and the history of that problem and their past medical history and their surgical history and their gynecological history of relevant and their drug history and their social history. And then you might do a review of systems and any other types of history you might find. And then you examine them and then you sort of put all that together. And depending on what setting you're in, that can be pages and pages of information that you've gathered. And you can see how this has evolved as a way of collecting data from a patient who uh, who's new to the service and you've got no information about them. And you imagine it's 1950 and you've, you, you're a doctor, uh, a bearded gentleman wearing a white coat and you've gone to the patient with some paper. And that makes sense in 1950. But to me, I one wonders why so much effort is still being expended on clerking people when we actually already have quite a lot of data about these people. So, yes, you're always going to have to find out why they've come and what the problem is leading up to that, and you would want to reiterate and and reconfirm some points from their history. But do we really need to take this comprehensive and lengthy and, let's face it, extremely time-consuming uh, detailed clerking from a patient. So my, in a nutshell, my, my quote was, the clerking of a patient is an outdated and inefficient model of healthcare information management. Discuss. 
Nice. I like that. <laughs> I know Stephen's got some very strong opinions on data mining and, and clarking. So, um, hit us. No, I know you do because we've talked about <laughs> it a lot. Yeah. What did I say? Okay, I'll talk about it then. So, <laughs> you can tell us what Stephen thinks. I'll tell you what. Yeah. I, I'll I'll say what Stephen thinks. Okay. So, tell me what what, what would I say? What would Stephen say? Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> Stephen would say. Stephen would say that the most important part of the clerking is the time that you spend in the office data mining all the various sources of information on the various clinical systems, in the notes, um, maybe calling a few people uh, and getting all that background data um, before you then go and speak to the patient. Is that what you say, Stephen? Kind of. Yeah, okay. I might have changed my mind on some of that. Okay, but okay. You're, you're right. I am very, bit, I am very uh, keen on that kind of aspect of it. Yeah, and, I, and actually, you know, I, I don't practice clinical medicine anymore, but it's something that I sort of came to organically because, Mark, at a medical school, you get taught this very structured, very prosaic way of 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 doing one of these clerkings. Um, and then I began to realise that actually the most important thing for someone who's reading this is actually to know, okay, who's the patient? What's their, you know, what's their age? And then immediately to see all the background information, including the drug history about that patient. Um, so I remember when I was clerking, what I used to do is I used to have patient name and then a big, like often, and it could often be a page or two, which just was background, which would go through each of the major comorbidities, maybe what drugs they were on, any significant history to do with those com- comorbidities. So I might only get to the presenting complaint, actually, on the at the end of the second page. Um, but that seems to be a trend that others have taken up now quite a lot as well. And actually, the interesting thing is that time you're doing that, you're not actually talking to the patient. You're, you're sitting in an office or trying to find notes and reading through and summarizing and trying to get a really concise sort of background on that particular patient also it helps with readability as well because you know when you come to review a patient um, that someone else has clerked and you see the presenting complaint chest pain history presenting complaint the pain started at this site at this onset etc 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 that information actually is not really it's interesting but it's not it doesn't really give you a lot if you don't know what's happened before and if the past medical history is over the page or two pages on then that's not very useful you need to know that that person has had three mis in the past and has got had triple bypass surgery 16 times etc etc to really make sense of that initial presenting complaint Um, so actually i think there is a trend in, in the way that it's changing the way people write it i certainly know people who write invertedly like you've been talking about they put background yes. first. So yeah. first line, background, blah, 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 and, then, and then on the, that background, this is what's happened. And it does make it more um, comprehensible. I think all of us do that because the reality is is that the, the presenting complaint and history of presenting complaint means not very much without any context. Exactly. Uh, someone feeling a bit shivery and is completely well is very different from someone who's undergoing chemotherapy and has no immune system feeling a bit shivery. The context is completely different and it completely changes the way you what you do to the patient. And you, you, you can't you can't ask questions with absolutely no context. And but the pressure of following that structure that we get taught from medical school is so strong that you still feel sometimes that if you don't do it the so-called proper way, the way you've been taught and the way you've been shown, somehow you're cheating the system. 
Um, and so I, I just was when you were talking, I was just reflecting on the fact that you know how we always go to um, whenever medical students come on the wards, we say, "Oh, you need to practice clocking. Go clock that patient." And of course, they will go presenting complaint, history of presenting complaint. And I don't know whether that's the right way to do it at all, because that's the only way we seem to do it. No, especially because the patients you ask them to clock have usually been in hospital for six weeks. Exactly. So, so the, the, the history becomes very convoluted and, and slightly bizarre. You know, they start talking about the thing that happened yesterday rather than the thing that happened on an admission. So, you know, it, it, it's... I Actually, I teach a course... Um, um, for junior doctors, uh, which runs twice a year, uh, teaching them how to transition from being a professional medical student right. to a professional doctor. Um, and I talk about these two separate things, the house officer, the, the, the sorry, not the house officer, the, the medical student clerking being, and the doctor clerking, and how you need to switch your mindset and not be afraid to switch from one to the other. Um, and you're right, Waikyong, I mean, people sort of look at me with their mouths open thinking oh what this is not how it's taught this is not this is not right this is not right um but as somebody who you know has to review this stuff and also you know follow a story i think it is the right way to do it and i, and I would encourage more certainly more medical schools to think about at least acknowledging that as another way of presenting if not teaching that as the way itself because i used to say to my medical students before you go and speak to the patient and practice your clerking, you know, at least know something about that, some background about that patient. And they say, well, mm. isn't that cheating? I was like, well, no, you need, in real life, you need to know a little background about the patient before, before you go and actually um, speak to them. Have you watched that movie, that movie called Memento? Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Can you, can you, can you imagine if we let did medicine that way? <laughs> <laughs> I basically do. <laughs> <laughs> so Marcus, I'm, I'm I'm curious to hear from you because of course in GP land, if you were to clock every patient, you'll never see anybody. Absolutely, that's uh, that's what I was going to come to is that we don't clock patients in general practice, and that's the only way it could possibly work. Because if something comes, you know, I mean, we see eighteen, sixteen or eighteen patients in a morning, same in an afternoon, and you to get through that many, you rely on the computer having a lot of what would have been your clerking is already in there. And so it kind of is, uh, the, the technology is absolutely critical to this. And that possibly explains the whole reason why in the main hospitals which have paper notes don't, they, they aren't in a position to do this so that they have to have clerkings. But um, when I sit down with a patient, I can see their drug history um, it's, it's even more rich than their drug history because I can see whether they've had uh, what they've had, what they've got now, but also what they had last week, what they're allergic to, what they just aren't allergic to but didn't like, whether their compliance has been very good as measured by how often they've been getting their repeat prescriptions. You can get a lot of data from that. And then I've got all their past history in a kind of journal form, which is very just a big list of every every entry ever which i actually find very useful because i can do, i just whiz up and down that and i can skim it for the things i'm interested in but then there are also all the coded entries so you can look for specific types of codes or you can look at things that have been coded as problems and this would form really your past medical history mm. and it goes right back includes for most people now i think in, you 
the whole anyone who's under 30 really you're going to have their immunization history in total you're going to have everything they've ever had done surgically you're going to have all their letters and things like that so it just clarking goes out the window when you've got all that information actually the skill then is not collecting this information like like a clerk as in clerking um it's processing information because you've got data overload as it were in a record that's so rich how do you find the bits that are the most important so that's kind of what we need to be teaching medical students to be able to do a little bit like what Stephen was talking about the data mining it's the skill of how do you in, interrogate this enormous record and get useful information out of it so if you take like the, the, what, how hospitals are at the moment, one of the biggest things that everyone asks for is the ability to see uh, patients' letters uh, and previous discharge summaries. Because I guess for our highly antiquated systems in hospitals compared to what you have, that is our version of our past medical history and all the things that's happened to our patient. That's the only way we can derive that intelligence from. And in my current hospitals, we can't do that. And that makes, and I think that probably leads to ridiculous amounts of mismanagement and ridiculous amounts of um, unnecessary admissions because there is no context. So you just, you just can't make the decisions. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. I work in a hospital. I also do, a, I didn't mention at the beginning, but I do A&E sessions usually about one a week. And I, I, in my hospital that I work in, we do have an electronic document management system. And mm. you can look at the previous letters, previous ECGs and previous A&E attendances. And that saves a lot of admissions because you can look at somebody who ordinarily would probably get admitted and you look back and go oh this is always how their ecg is and it's been like that the last 10 times and they're here every week and you can it gives you a lot of context so I, I guess my question is um well first question to you mark is do all are all gp systems because i know there are a few are they equal in in this ability to show you this summarized information or are some better than others um, and the second part of my question really, <coughs> second part of my question is really, um, how do we, you know, how do we move towards, what do we need to do in the hospital environment to move towards the same model? And what are the, cha what are some of the challenges that are going to, going to face us doing that? So the first part of the question, I've, I've remember. <laughs> You remembered that. Uh, what was the first part of the question? No, I remember the second part. And I'm the, thinking, the first part was... Oh, it's systems. Systems, what, yeah. yeah. Systems. Well, they all do a, a reasonable job of being able to summarise. You can read code everything and you, you can, to a greater or lesser extent, you can do similar things with each of them. But like all software, the differences are in the implementation, how user-friendly they are. So some are very easy to kind of flick from one screen to another and, and you can you can be taking small pieces of information from several different locations. Um, a, an example would be System 1, which I, I kind of like System 1, I think it's okay. Um, and it's, it's one I use a lot and it's 
easy to flick from different areas uh, from one area to another and get that information. On the other hand, <coughs> something like Emis LV, which is looks like a kind of command line client. Uh, have any of you used TPath? Telepath. No. Uh, oh yes, I, I've seen yeah. it before. Yes, it's just a command line. Yeah, yeah. And I've yeah. I've used e- uh, Emis LV and Anger, and uh, both in Anger in practice, and also so, in Anger. And yeah, it's in not, general. Yeah. Emis LV lo- looks pretty much like Telepath. It's that kind of black screen with um, com- a completely keyboard driven. Now, on one hand, actually, the keyboard driven bit can speed you up, but for browsing a record and really getting a handle on things. Um, for, say, a patient with complicated history who you've never met before, which happens to me a lot as a locum, I find Emus LV really backward, really slows you down, makes it hard to work. So it's... There is a huge variation, and none of them are particularly great because there is always issues over how customizable they try and be. I think System 1 tries to let you customise things, but in, in an effort to give you all the options gives you no options because it's just so it's so mind-bendingly complex that you actually just end up using the defaults and i think that's Um, such an important point giving you all the options gives you no options and the point is that these systems have to be designed with the people who are actually using them and saying that though you know general practice the gp systems um have a very good pedigree for that but I feel that along the way, um, as they were monkey patched and uh, and grew in size and, and user base, some of that was lost. I think in the mix, um, and they they became a lot more about you know what's the, what's the sort of governance information that we need to get out of this system, um, mm. and less about actually well, okay, how is a doctor going to be quickest using it, and how are they going to get the information that they want. Yeah, I think there's something about this lack of appreciation of design, lack of appreciation of um, something that I recently become quite interested in, which is information design. Like, how would you present information in such a way that um, accelerates the decision-making process? Because like what you said uh, before, where we gather all this information purely to make a decision about the patient and no other reason. And the computer can present the information to us in ways that will help us hopefully come to decisions which are better and so that we are less likely to miss important results we are less likely to to miss pieces of information uh, because the more we need to click and go through hierarchical structures the more likely we are going to uh, omit something so i don't think there's an appreciation for that as well because you've got the doctor who kind who doesn't really quite know what they want they just know what information we want how not how to present it you got the engine the coder who doesn't get what the doctors are because they don't do their job but you got no one in between which is the one the designer who helps try figure out what the doctors really want and then translate that to the coders i think that is missing you've got me Wai Kyung. that's what i do I've, oh right very good you see but you are you are unusual in the sense that you know both fields you see but that's that that is a little you know I, I'm not saying that everyone needs to do what I do and go and learn to code and then do all the coding. But and I think this is a lot of the stuff to do with the digital doctor movement that we've tried to, to set to, to, to spread. And that, you know, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of empowerment mm. with regard to IT. Um, people always say a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. But I think in this space, a little bit of knowledge actually 
can can have a huge impact mm. on your ability as a user of a system to be able to inform in a way that the people who are actually going to be doing the, 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 the grunt work of building that system. Yeah, but I would still argue that um, there you still, have, uh, you still don't have the design element. The people who are actually interested in how would you uh, present data. So, you know, I'm clearly talking about people like Tufti and stuff because you've got doctors and you've got the coders, but you don't have the other people. And I think that, that so can call it the third skill or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. You, I think we can gain an appreciation of that and, 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 and drive it even further. So we need some doctor design hybrids. You need some doctor design coder hybrids. Yeah. User interface professionals. Yeah. What do you yes. think about all this, Stephen? You're very quiet. <laughs> uh, I'm still churning over the philosophical point about doing away with clerkings. Because, I mean, you know me, I, I am really interested in data mining and I do practice in that way. I do write the background first. And if possible, like a dog... I would have a microchip RIFID implant um, just so that everyone knew everything about me. I'm not scared. Uh, I've got nothing to hide. So, um, but the thing I think is a problem, and, and I've seen this time and time again, which is why it concerns me a little bit. I think there's a, a fine balance between data quality versus efficiency. Absolutely, in A&E, the best way to practice, and, and GP, I don't, I don't, Marcus, I have no idea how you get through that many patients a day, but, but well done. Um, it's not a day, it's a morning, isn't it's it? It's a morning. <laughs> no, you said that times two. Oh, okay. 16 right. to 18 times two, so per <laughs> day. Anyway. I, I mean, it, the only way that you can practice that way is by working efficiently and having all the information there. And GPs have to have all that information there. And putting that into A&E, I think, is incredibly valuable. But where the problem lies is uh, if you think about the chain of information. So, for example, let's take a someone comes into A&E and they get clerked by someone. Um, and you get a really kind of brief clerking in A&E, then the medical team comes along and the, the medical, uh, t one of the junior medical team will clerk them. Maybe the registrar will come and write some notes. The consultant will see the next morning. They may get referred into a specialty. The junior, probably a registrar in the specialty, will go and see that patient. And then the consultant will come along. Maybe they'll be seen in clinic later and then that will get fed back to the GP. If you think about the chain of information, it's incredibly interesting because what you see time and time again when people are in hospital is that uh, people copy the notes out. Uh, have you seen this, Wakeyong? I mean, oh, you must see this yeah. time and time again. So they copy the clerking. So someone will write down a problem list at the top, and it will be one, two, three, four, five, six, and that will get replicated about ten times during the the, the patient's stay. By, but probably more than that by by different people. And it's good to, to to write that and remind yourself of the context you're seeing the patient in, but. Copying is pointless, absolutely pointless. It doesn't add anything, I don't think, other than helping you to figure out what the context is. Um, and you see it in clinic letters as well. So if someone's seen from clinic to clinic, if you take the diagnoses and the problem list from the previous patient's letter, that is completely pointless. What you really need to know is when, where, and how these people were diagnosed with such things so you can judge. For example, I've seen people develop cirrhosis of the liver um, when they actually don't have cirrhosis. But according to their clinic letters, they have developed cirrhosis because one person six months ago, right, maybe like query cirrhosis or something like that next to something on the problem list. 
So, you know, uh, uh, next to maybe an investigation result, like an ultrasound, the next person comes and they misinterpret that. It's like Chinese whispers. And then eventually that person's labelled as being a serotic. Well, actually, they're not. And I think this is much more dangerous in the digital world because for some reason, when thing is shown in type and not handwriting, it carries greater weight psychologically. And uh, you can always do command C, command V. Well, you, if you have a Mac, you're lucky to have a Mac in hospital. But you can always copy and paste, and that's incredibly dangerous as well because the temptation and, is to just do that. And I would recommend people uh, read the work of a guy called Bob Walker. That's W A. We'll put it on the show notes. But he's uh, one of the leaders in patient safety in in the U.S. And in one of his blogs, uh, he actually talks about this: the command, uh, the control C, control V phenomenon. It's just, it, he says that you just get loads and loads of this electronic patient uh, notes, continuation notes, which are just repeated from the next one, and you can't even find the piece of information that you need. Yeah. Oh, people are and lazy. You, people are lazy, aren't they? That, that's true, and you'd be surprised how often I change my mind. So if I, if mm. I was on call last night and I did an emergency clinic this morning, and uh, in the clinic this, this morning I had a look at the, 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 what the previous registrar had written down, just a few jotted notes about why the patient was coming. And so the GP had taken a history that had been seen in A&E, and that was all related to this registrar, and he wrote what, what his thoughts were. And it all seemed like a kind of nicely fitted together story about what was wrong with the patient. But when you sit down and you know the history is the most important thing when you sit down with the patient and take the history it's a chance to clarify the story and make your own yeah. mind up yeah and it was completely different i the, the, from from what the previous registrar thought and that's not a problem or a fault of anyone's they're only acting on the best type of information but we are we are knowledge workers information is our bricks and, and mortar and if we don't have good information then we're not going to make the right decisions. So, yes, efficient working is great, but data quality is most important. And this is what I don't think a lot of these people sitting, writing policy understand. Because they just keep thinking that things is about repetition and we should cut down repetition. And patients also go, why do you keep asking me the same questions over and over again? And that, that is exactly the reason why we do it. There's this issue with trust as well. And I think we talked about this before, Marcus, haven't we? About... I don't, tr- I don't fully trust what the A&E doctor said. Uh, and when I read through a clocking, the things I trust is the more objective measures, but the actual impression, I would like to come to it myself. And I wonder how in GP land, do you, do you have a greater trust of the pre- things that people have previously written, especially when they have actually coded a diagnosis, you know, like gout or something? Uh, well, you probably do because we, in a practice there's a smaller pool of people who could have put that entry there. And so maybe you, even in a large practice, there might be sort of eight doctors. And to a, le- a greater or lesser degree, you will trust what they've put. You might not trust some of them. You might trust others more than... <laughs> but what you're talking about is a group of people who you know quite well. That's different in a hospital environment where you may have never met and may never meet the doctor who wrote that that initial clerking. Um, It is becoming more of an issue for GPs because as we're connecting with other systems in the community, Mm. like district nurses and community services of all different kinds, and even in some places like cottage hospitals and some places have got A&Es that are linking into the GP's record, you're getting a little bit less familiar with the people who are putting in your your information so that's a bigger issue than i think a lot of people appreciate and it's it's, so once you get an electronic record in in the hospitals don't expect it to fix this problem completely because 
you, you've still got an awful large number of people putting in data who you might not know. Yeah, and this, I mean, I don't think this is about trust of an individual. There's no way that in this day and age with multi-professional working and, uh, you know, and, and us trying to integrate care as much as possible with chronic disease, there's no way you're going to know everyone who's taken a, an involvement in that case. So I don't think it's about individual trust. This is a system problem. Um, for example, say someone is referred to the endocrine clinic and they get seen by one of the SHOs who's an FY2 and uh, he's just doing his, uh, his clinic because the, the core medical trainee was away. I like to paint an elaborate story, but um, this, this isn't true, by the way. <laughs> and uh, so he sees the patient, he makes uh, an initial uh, uh, impression and uh, and and relays that in, in the form of a letter to the GP. So this is what I think it is and a, a little outline of a plan. So he may have listed a couple of diagnoses on there that he's picked up and that gets translated as it probably should into the GP's records in electronic format. Um, but at the follow-up appointment, the FY2 quite rightly says, I think I'd like this person be, to be seen by the consultant next. So the consultant sees the patient and actually makes a completely different set of diagnoses now, the consultant needs to be really careful here because what they run the risk of is not cancelling out prior diagnoses that may be wrong that have been made by the F2. So the, the, the problem that may happen is you end up just adding onto the problem list these extra problems and you end up with a patient with, you know, 10 problems and half of them are actually thoughts of another doctor that aren't necessarily true. So this process of, uh, of um, this kind of... Um, information working. We should be working efficiently, but I think it needs to undergo a review every now and again. Someone needs to sit down and think about when, where, and how these diagnoses were made, and what evidence do we have in uh, for, for those particular diagnoses. And I think that's the key: is that you don't necessarily need to have uh, a record that's full of assertions made by different individuals about what's wrong with the patient. Right. If you've got a record that has the raw data in it, mm. then each person can go back to that raw data when they need to find out what the provenance of that, that say, a coded entry that says they've got diabetes. How do we know they've got diabetes? Well, you can go back and uh, with a good record, it's actually virtually easier to just go and find the HbA1c's than it is to look through for clinical entries in the journal that explain why a particular person thought that the patient had this condition. So you, one of the consequences of not clerking people is actually you don't re rely on these assertions quite as much because it's easier to go back to the first principle data. Yeah, and I think you should, and for some types of problems, particularly diabetes, that's, that's a good way of doing things. But let's not forget that disease classification changes. So going back to the raw data and making a diagnosis, you know, if that's not reviewed, um, you, you know, new, new information about the way we should manage patients and what, what the, the, the disease classifications are comes in all the time. So that's going to need to be revised in the context of what we know now. So, Marcus, you know, in the GP systems, is there any way you can attach a particular result or a particular consultation to when a diagnosis was made? So that when you see a diagnosis being coded, let's say, type 2 diabetes, you can go back to the uh, consultations or the blood results in and around the time that the yeah. diagnosis was yeah. made. Well, any decent problem-orientated medical record, you can link all the relevant entries of any kind to that problem. So if I've got somebody with uh, cirrhosis, to use your example, Stephen, you can 
link it to the ultrasound report that shows their cirrhosis being visible and their liver function tests and any of the consultations that have gone on and perhaps even the causative agent if you know it and any alerts that have been set up they can all be grouped so it's a little bit like tagging them in you know like you tag your emails with do you do you tag your emails well you can <laughs> you can <laughs> don't, please don't please don't get Stephen started on oh this. boy going, oh, you no, just don't, 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 just don't do into into a holy war about tagging <laughs> I don't know whether I don't know whether you listen to our productivity uh, podcast with with Stephen and I, but um, yeah, Stephen, <laughs> I dutifully listen to all of your podcasts. Actually, oh. D- duty is the key word there. <laughs> <laughs> Gritting my teeth. Um, no, uh, there are lots of ways of organising information, but you can tag any. Uh, I mean, take the the quintessential sort of Rails application where you you have a podcast and you, you want to be able to tag it with different tags so that it, it has relevance to those tags. So you can get any piece of information in a medical record and tag it with a problem so that when you search under that problem, everything that you've tagged will be shown. So you can kind of filter the record is what I'm saying in an extremely yeah. long-winded way. All right, so you can actually do that. So is there actually a problem-orientated medical record-type structure in these systems, in the GP? There is. The one I use most is System 1, and that's problem-orientated, yeah. It's, uh, wow. it's kind of weird to be talking about it like... I mean, we take it for granted. It's just normal that, you know, you would... If you enter something as a problem, like ischemic heart disease, you would be expected, really, to back that up with... Well, you, it's not just I've put a code in because I am me. I have to say, why do I think he's got ischemic heart disease? And the, the simplest way will be to link it to test results or letters or things you can... It, now, the handling of letters is not always great in some of these systems, so they're just a list of letters you have to kind of right-click. You would expect the letters would be like a little thumbnail... It would look great if, you know, you're looking down a digital record and any letters that have been scanned would be there as a thumbnail. And they're not in any system that I've used. But all the other stuff, the problem orientation, uh, is done quite nicely, really. I, I wonder whether there's a way of automating that. For example, um, instead of you having to physically tag it, is that every time you go to a particular result, the, the, the computer knows when that was put in and it can gather all the information that was created in and around that time and, and present it to you that way. I, yeah, I've never seen that in action. Kind of, you know, kind of auto-grouping, you know, making, I don't know. But then can the computer effectively make a diagnosis? You chuck it a load of tests and it'll tell you what's wrong. Well, it's interesting. Ooh. Have you seen, have you seen <laughs> IBM, IBM's Watson? Watson. Yeah. yeah, so Watson was the Jeopardy uh, supercomputer, wasn't he? Mm. Yeah. yeah. And actually, clinicians in the US are going mental for it. Mental. Mental. So, so one thing to say, I think it's probably worth um, telling our listeners about the problem-oriented medical record very briefly. And I just want to recommend a YouTube video that I think was in the 1970s by a guy called uh, Lawrence Weed, that's W-E-E-D. And he's, he's, the, he's the father of the problem-oriented medical record. And he's also the father of the SOAP framework that a lot of people like to use, you know, Subjective Objective Assessment Plan that people use on ward rounds. 
And um, that YouTube video is well worth reading because so much of, you know, the way we are supposed to be working is based on his his theory of problem-oriented medical records. Absolutely. Yeah, I've seen that video and it's, it's very interesting. And it just highlights how... And he was talking about paper records, but everything he talks about is perfectly applicable to electronic records. And he was uh, complaining, really, I suppose, about how there's just in ever-increasing amounts of writing in these notes without them being organised into problems. Mm. Mm. But problems they, these days are so interconnected, right? I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that having a particular problem... I don't, I don't like problemless, personally. I know some consultants, uh, physicians, go nuts for it, um, and, and that's passed on to their juniors, unfortunately. But I, I don't like that concept because I don't think that a problem can stand on its own and you should consider the patient in that way. Um, I think, yes, holistic medicine is a, is a lovely goal. We can't always achieve that. But so many of these problems are interconnected um, that I don't think you can really separate things out into problems. I think you're right about that, actually. Um, I don't like completely separation, but funnily enough, GP records never feel like that. It's, it, it's more like having a very active form of past medical history part of your clerking. Yeah. So that problem list... Instead of saying to the patient, what have you got wrong with you? And what past medical problems have you had? That's the problem list. And it's always there. And it's kind of a, it's a live past medical history. Yeah. And the dates are really, really good. So <laughs> when you get, when you get one of those printouts from, from EMIS or something, when you're in the hospital, that's great. But they're a little bit difficult to look at. And just to tie in what we were saying before about data visualization, <laughs> there's a big opportunity there to do that, something like that. And you could, you mean, you could almost look at it from the end of the room and, and say, well, this person was quite well during that period. But, you know, over the last, you know, X number of months, things are, haven't been going so well. And that might, you know, give you a bit of a pointer as to, to looking into different reasons why that may be. I always think it would be very, very cool to take like a five-year view on a particular patient, like with all the test results um, and everything on one screen. So that you just see little dots for when they have visits, when they've been admitted to hospital, how many tests that they have had, and you can almost hone in to see the times when they were particularly ill and uh, and just working at that level and then zooming in and, you know, I don't know. I, I think that is something that can be done with GP records. if someone Yeah, and then you start to pick up things. And as you say, like you, it's easy to copy and paste and, and write the, the previous history out. But I've seen loads of people that are on warfarin, for example, of all things. And, uh, and no one really t stops to think and ask them why. And then when you do, or when someone does, say, why are you on warfarin? And, uh, you know, they might not know. And you go back into the old records. Mm. Turns out they had a, a pulmonary embolism at some point in time, maybe five years ago, and the warfarin's never been stopped. Yep. It's all just continued. And I see that time and time again. I'm we are very bad at that, yeah. The, the longitudinal, um, almost like setting a periodic review. Hospital doctors manage that with the come, come back to clinic in six months' time. Kind of, that's the way that you would arrange a periodic review. How does... In the same way, as if, if, I, if you were going to do that in your uh, non-medical life, you'd put it in a calendar or you could have some kind of recurring reminder, a notification of something. Omnifocus. Omnifocus, if you wish. No, um, things. <clears throat> oh. but, but whatever you use, you could do something. Whereas in hospital, really, all you've got is just, oh, come back and see me, bring, come back to clinic. And in general practice... 
you tend to use a similar sort of thing. Come back and see me in in about so and so, and we'll talk about whether your warfarin needs stopping. But that none of the systems, either the paper uh, or the electronic, have particularly good handling of periodic events. Like Absolutely. even in the best system, I can't even in system one, which I use a lot, and I, I think is is part of, probably one of the better. There's no way of saying. Um, send me a notification if this patient hasn't had a full blood count by the end of the month. Mm. But you, you know, need some reasoning as well. So, like, I, I am an absolute idiot in my personal and professional life, completely stupid. Unless it's written down, it doesn't get done. And I forget things really, really quickly. So I, I've taken it upon myself to try and write as detailed plans as I can with as much specifics as I can. So, for example... Um, if, if I've just seen a patient in clinic and I know in six months I'm going to want to check the full blood count, um, if, I, if I just write full blood count with, you know, with next clinical appointment, I'll forget what that means and why I was looking at it. So I think you have to write really good management plans and say, check uh, you know, platelet count on next uh, clinic visit because they're on this certain medication, for example, that kind of thing. Hmm. I think that you know, that's much more helpful to the people who are coming after you because at least they can understand why you've, why you've chosen to ask for that test. And I, what, um, I was just going to say, it's really interesting what you just said, Stephen, about why we're you know, forgetting. Um, because actually yeah. forgetting is a bit of a product of the digital age. The fact that we actually don't need to remember so much stuff now. We just assume that we can find the answer, you know, incredibly when we, need easily, it. when we need it you know we just it's almost google has now almost got so powerful that you know certainly you know for i mean obviously coding totally different but i can basically copy and paste an error code in my specific situation into the, the google omnibar and i will get you know a hundred answers <laughs> to that to mm. that question but i think mm. it it, 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 it I, there is an actually really interesting book um, which I'm reading at the moment, all about this, how our memories or, or, or modern people's memories in the digital age are actually a lot worse than they've ever been. Um, and that's not because people are stupid or whatever. It's just simply because we don't use our memories properly. We just completely rely on technology, digital stuff, to basically function as an external brain for us and that we don't make the effort to actually memorize things. And if you go back um, 50 or 60 years and look at the, uh, the curriculums um, of, uh, of people growing up, you find there is a much, much greater focus on core memory skills, how you actually memorize things and tricks and tips and things to, to maintain your own information in your own brain rather than dumping it somewhere else. Um, I will dig out the, um, the book because it's incredibly interesting. And actually, I think it's got a lot... Uh, to you know, to say in this space as well, um, yeah. and some of the dangers of, of all this stuff. And this is why having Wi-Fi in hospitals is so important. Because, uh, the, and I think I've, I've realised that. I mean, I'm very much like that, and I feel my memory isn't as good as it used to be. But then I realised also that I can't remember all of this stuff, and I'm not, I'm not even going to attempt it. And I, and I, as long as I use these tools properly, and I have systems in place to capture stuff and process it in the right way, I don't need to. So I can concentrate, use my cognitive efforts for for other things, solving problems. And I think, in a way, 
we need to be doing that more in the hospital because time and time again we're seeing lots and lots of patients, you know, seeing 18 patients in the morning. Um, I feel like we're just firefighting rather than taking a, a considered approach with the patient, not just to solve problems and stop disasters, but to make their lives better. Yeah, yeah and, I, I, and I, I'll be very worried about memory-based care as well because that's... Uh, because that introduces all kind of things, and I think you know we should use these tools. Uh, and if the tools are, are available, it actually makes us better. It's like adjuncts to us. Yeah, I'm, well, not, you know you... I'm not proposing memory-based care. I'm just saying <laughs> that I think that sometimes we don't, whether that's purely knowledge-based information that we should know as doctors, or whether that's information about our patients. Sometimes we should remember. We should try and remember. We should make cognitive efforts to try and remember certain things rather than necessarily always just saying oh it's somewhere you know because if 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 we take the the attitude that oh it's just somewhere and we're using systems that that somewhere could be anywhere then Mm. suddenly we've got nothing yeah i think you're right and there are problems with using um those kinds of things and not having a feel for what what is uh, a reasonable kind of level or a reasonable kind of dose or something like that because if you use a bnf to look up a drug but it's not the latest version there might be something in there that's changed and you do not have a leg to stand on unfortunately even if you've been a diligent doctor and gone to the effort to check the bnf if 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 that's changed in the new version and something goes wrong well you're liable, I'm afraid. Mm. That's the book-based thing. I mean, I use the website, of course. Okay, so I'm going yeah. to move us on a bit from this. Um, we've spoken about uh, what patient clockings are, the problems with them, <coughs> data mining, how things are done relatively well in primary care. But let's just talk, I think, now more about secondary care. And if anyone's aware of actually any systems that do things well or do things badly, uh, I haven't got a lot to contribute here because uh, I don't... I've never used a system that does it well when I did work um, in, in, in secondary care. But maybe Wai Kiong and Stephen have some thoughts on this. Uh, no. Clarking, I, I, don't, I haven't seen uh, very many clocking apps. The, the one that would spring to mind, though, is Open Eyes. Yeah, that's the only thing I... And, yeah. But Open Eyes is, is very condition-specific. Uh, uh, to ophthalmology and if you listen to Bill talk about things he says cataract module glaucoma module and I just wonder where, how, how that I'll be very curious to see how it works in the A&E situation where patients won't come to you and say I have glaucoma so give me the glaucoma module they'll come to you and say I, I have blurred vision and how do you then record that in open eyes I'll be quite curious I have not seen it but they, he must have thought about it well we well, yeah. we saw it at the Oxford NHS Hack Day where they did open heart and they showed a clarking initially. Yeah, it was about sort of post-operative uh, <laughs> care for someone who'd had a coronary artery bypass. But it was a clarking, essentially a clarking proforma, a very yep. nice clarking proforma. Um, and I, I don't know. I think we should really try and get a little uh, video up on YouTube or something of, of, of that it may already exist because I think that is a great example of how a clerking could be made digitally effective. Yeah, but in that case, that was only if someone had chest pain, which then went on to have a a, a coronary mm. intervention. You've what got to start it, somewhere, right? Yeah. But but there was yeah. a lot of generic stuff in that 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 could be extracted out to to anything, and it certainly is the best representation of a clerking digitally I've seen. I think the thing to be getting away from is the notion of rep- repetition. So 
collecting data that already exists in a healthcare record mm. is absolutely a waste of your time. And we need to be very clear that records should not encourage that at all. So clerking, where there's a data set and there'll be a blank page full of forms, uh, fields to fill in, that worries me because when a programmer is writing that, it's sometimes easier just to get you to put the data in again than it is for them to present you with the existing data in a way that you can see it. And that's the worry. That's the problem. Unless you take a really firm stance against the idea of clerking, no. The information is already in there. What we need is the, is the new information. What has, ha what has changed to bring you here? What has changed since last time we saw you? And that sort of thing. That's really interesting, yeah. actually, because this, this follows on from a conversation. Wai Kyung and I got together um, a couple of weeks ago, actually a couple of months ago, to talk about this project, Recce, which I'm working on. Um, and we, we basically sort of came to the idea that actually if you had the right data coming in for a patient, you know, data on uh, radiography, uh, blood tests, short notes from, from doctors, tasks being... Um, created for a patient mm. and then completed and you created a timeline of that mm. you could actually almost create if you had the right data coming in a perfect patient record automatically if you plotted that information over time um, yeah it's an rss feed isn't it yeah just of uh, just of blobs of data and that then you would filter that data according to what you wanted to get out of it for exactly. that particular Application. Yeah, exactly. So, for example, you might be called to see the, someone with chest pain and all this the timeline is there full of data and you might be able to apply some filters to that data to, to narrow it down based on the tagging in order to see the information that, that you're most interested in. And then maybe perhaps, you know, you do a troponin and set up a little uh, a graph that follows the, tr follows the troponin or other blood markers um, that way around. Um, and that was a re that was that, that's really interesting to me. It's it te obviously yeah. technically incredibly challenging because you have to integrate with all of the data streams that exist <laughs> in a hospital. But I think actually, you know, as opposed to the model of you know doctor coming to see patient who's in hospital, copying out problem list and then writing what they think um, re with all the repetition that involves, that is a much better sort of overall and 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 deeper and more. Um, what am I trying to say? Uh, more, more global, global view yeah. of the patient that you that you know is accurate, and you're not relying on somebody else. You know, somebody else summarizing and and the cirrhosis problem, which Stephen mentioned, and stuff like that. Yeah, and the more I hear you guys talk about this, the more I can't help but to think about programming and, and some of how the frameworks like Ruby on Rails and Django and Python rely on, you know, don't repeat yourself kind of uh, segmentation of, of, of good database design. Um, and I, th I think that, I mean, what do you guys feel about personal controlled medical records? What does that mean? So where the patient controls their medical record. When you mean control, do you mean they hold it physically or do you mean they decide who to see the uh, medical record that's kept in the clouds? What do you mean? 
both. So they ha- they have the ability to update the information. They have the ability to decide who sees and who doesn't see their medical record. And um, if need be, I don't know. You know, I'm, uh, let's not talk about specifics, but you know whether that be a cloud-based solution or whether they carry around with them on a on a Rifid tag on the back of their neck like a dog. Um, I don't really know. But well, what do you at, feel about the, the look that at maternity? Concept? Look at maternity care. I mean, exactly. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, pregnant ladies wander around with their, you know, their all their maternity care documents in their handbag, and that seems to work incredibly well. It does. Um, it's that's a particularly unfortunate example, though, because what the, the, the handheld document is a, a kind of distillation of a few notes from the main obstetric record, which is completely separate. So you've got this duplication of paper yeah. stuff. So. Although we're trusting the patients with a bit of record, it's not really the record. It's their, it's a, you know, their kind of simplified record, which may have some useful information to it, in it. But I, I don't think it's, it's not the same as saying, here you are, this is your record. No, no, no. But uh, no, but what I, I think it does do is prove the concept that people can take charge of their health in a responsible way. Now, obviously, the condition of being pregnant, whether you consider that you know a condition or not, but um, that that is, I mean, they have a vested interest and they're a particularly engaged, young, and motivated group of patients. Whereas some of the the people with chronic disease and, and often where there's lots of social problems involved, um, that may be a lot more difficult. Um, and people might not do it so well. But I, I think it does prove the concept that you can uh, give people the responsibility to look after and groom their medical record. I'm really excited to see uh, a new initiative um, bringing the Red Book, um, Pediatric Red Book, online. Because I actually see that almost as the beginning point of exactly what you're speaking about, which is, you know, a personalised healthcare record that you carry around with you. And, of course, initially it will just be the immunisations and how, you know, you growing properly, et cetera, et cetera. But if that could then be continued on and on and on, then, you know, potentially you've got right there from the very beginning a digital personal patient record. Mm. So I'm really excited I, to, see, to see that. Can, can I take this in a swerve? take it in another direction just to ask a question see what you think which is i'm gonna to have to you know we need to be sitting in a circle with our gp corduroy jacket on with leather elbow pads on but the clarking is 100 percent doctor agenda as in it's all the questions we want to know um but we but it doesn't actually have any space on it if you think about traditional clarking where's the bit for the patient's agenda I, uh, in my medical school, we call that ICE. <laughs> ideas, yeah. concerns, yeah. And expectations. Yeah, so that, that's where I put the, uh, in my clocking, uh, the patient's ideas, concerns, and expectations. You actually write that? Uh, I think I do. And where, where do you put it? At the end or something? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, at the the most important part for any clocking to me is the, the last bit. The last bit where I write my impression and why I think that's the impression and, you know, and just write what you told the patient and things like that. Yeah, I don't write that down so much, but I definitely use it every time I see a patient. You know, what, what do you think is going on? And you often get so much information, so like, I'm really worried it's a brain tumour. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you can address it and you can say, there's no evidence you have a brain tumour. The scan's normal. It's very reassuring. You know, try not to worry about it. Um, and, you know, their concerns as well is linked into that. Um, obviously, you can address their concerns at the same time. 
And uh, the, the expectations is, you know, what what do you want to happen next? Hmm. Are we all still here? Yep, we're still here. I think it's about time we wrap up, actually. I think we've we've spoken about a lot of stuff here. Um, it's been a r- really interesting... Um, I think we might have lost Marcus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we lost... <laughs> That's Marcus. <laughs> you know how I knew that he was missing? The, the, the sort of audio hum and background noise stopped. So I was like, well. <laughs> okay, well, I wonder if we, whether we should wrap up yeah. without him. Um, but no, it's been a really interesting conversation. We've looked at lots of different aspects. Um, I've actually found some really amazing reading while you guys have been talking. Um, stuff that I'm going to be going away this evening and, and taking a look at. Um, particularly about um, there's some really great stuff um, from that chap. Um, I think Stephen or what Wai Kiong mentioned. We'll put all the um, all show the links, notes, yeah. yeah, in 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 the show notes. Um, but but you know what this show has really highlighted to me, listening to what Marcus said about how some how they derive that 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 contact from the GP systems and how they starting to link evidence to a diagnosis. And I'm just thinking, you know. It's so important that when we design our hospital systems going forward, that we take these kind of things into consideration. Otherwise, you're just going to get lots of information, but nothing actually particularly useful. And I, I, I think I, I Tufti think said it best when he said, with the electronic patient record, we actually run the risk that um, information might become more legible, but hardly more comprehensible. Yeah. What a fantastic phrase to end on. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so um, that's been episode 16. Uh, what's up next, guys? What are we going to be talking about next? Ooh, not sure. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should do the collaborative working thing next. Oh, yes, we should do that. Given that the whole yeah. Digital Doctor was organised, uh, I think the conference was organised online, I think we should do that next. Yeah, it's been on the cards for a while, so I think yeah, it'd be it good to do it. Yeah. I'd love to do that. Okay, okay. so um, that's the end. Um, it's goodbye from me, Ed. And me, Stephen. And me, and me, Wai Kiong. And we'll say goodbye on uh, Marcus' behalf, which has been an absolutely great guest. Yeah. See yes, you soon. Thank you very much, Marcus. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Check for pulse.